Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. I'm Richard Ford, and I'm your host. This is July 1st, 2021, and whew, we dodged a bullet last night. I was really getting worried because I'm checking out the NCAA website, waiting to see if the Division I Board of Directors is going to adopt that Division I Council recommendation to put in place interim guidelines that would, would allow NCAA athletes nationwide to make a little money off of their nil. And sure enough, at 4.20 p.m., just seven hours and 40 minutes before the witching hour, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors indeed adopted the same guidelines that I talked about yesterday in that uh, Division I Council proposal. I stayed up till midnight anyway, just in case, because you never know. And sure enough, at midnight, I uh, cautiously walked outside and made sure there was oxygen in the air. And then I looked up into the beautiful sky on a a gorgeous North Carolina night. And the moon was hanging high in the sky and the trees all seemed to be standing and the flowers seemed to be intact. And I heard some rustling out in the woods and there wasn't any mass extinction of native species here. And I breathed a sigh of relief and I, I had a moment of gratitude for the courage of the NCAA leadership and their governing boards who stepped in to protect us at the very last minute from the fatal collapse of college sports. <laughs> Again, this episode's going to fall into the you, you just can't make this stuff up category. So at 4.20 yesterday, June 30th, the NCAA sticks on its website another one of these press releases. And it says, NCAA adopts interim name, image, and likeness policy. Interim policy goes into effect Thursday. So in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about this press release just to reinforce how fundamentally dishonest the NCAA has been on name, image, and likeness. And how deep the denial is for Mark Emmert here. And then I also want to talk a little bit about the NCAA governance structure and a little more specifically about how these three crucial boards, the NCAA Board of Governors, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, and then the Division I Council are composed and how they interact with each other because there are three different NCAA representatives who serve on governing boards who are quoted as supporting this interim policy, and they're putting in all the talking points that the NCAA wants to set the table for the next move, which is going to be in Congress. But I want to go through that statement really with a view towards exposing just how empty 
the illusion of NCAA governances and the separation between the different governing boards because they're presented to the public and through these press releases that the Division One Council is this independent body making independent decisions and forming by legislative proposals and pushing them through and then they have to be approved by the Division One Board of Directors, which is another independent, completely independent body that is taking a truly impartial review of the Division One legislation, and they're doing it all through the lens of what's best for athletes. And then you have above them the Board of Governors that is presented to the public as this truly independent kind of super governance body, association-wide, that protects the sacred principles of college sports and acts only in the interests of athletes and athlete well-being is first and foremost. And this suggestion of checks and balances and oversight within the governance structure is just another NCAA fraud. And again, it's something that nobody talks about because to really tease this out, you have to go into the NCAA Constitution, Article 4 on organization, and look very specifically at how these governing bodies are put together, how many seats there are, who gets those seats, what the crossover representation is, and there is substantial overlap that makes a mockery of independence. And very early in this podcast, I think it was episode three titled uh, Meet the Circular Firing Squad, What is the NCAA? I talked briefly about the governance structure in the uh, broader NCAA organization, and then later talked about the history of the evolution of governance and how the big-time powerful football interests basically uh, conducted a rolling hostile takeover that is now reflected in how seats are allocated in the most important governing boards. But I really didn't have a context to put it in, and I think it is always helpful to look at these structural issues in the context of a specific uh, issue and a specific action that these boards are taking. And so we're going to do that with respect to this name, image, and likeness interim policy because it's really interesting. And when you look at how these boards are actually composed, how they're required to be composed under the NCAA Constitution, and then you compare pair the suggestion of autonomy and NCAA checks and balances that they want you to believe about the decision-making process. And then you look at that in the context of the propaganda that the NCAA puts out under this illusion of these bodies all coming together, all agreeing. We're back to this consensus. Everybody agrees. And everybody agrees through this process of integrity and governance and all this stuff. So let's first take a look at this statement. Let's just get the absurd out of the way and then we'll get to the corrupt. So again, it's hard to put into words how dishonest this whole interim policy movement is because the NCAA has had decades to do something on nil. In that episode on Mark Emmert's June 18th, uh, 2021 letter to the membership telling those university presidents they better get their stuff in order because it's coming fast and uh, you're responsible. We're no longer responsible. It's just a, a stunning abdication of responsibility after the NCAA got its butt kicked in the Senate and then in the U.S. Supreme Court. But 
you had a, a complete lack of acknowledgement that this nil issue really goes back to 2005. And I talked about those internal memoranda in connection with this EA Sports deal. And that really was the genesis for this O'Bannon suit and the beginning of the name, image, and likeness discussion. And then this dishonest campaign starting in 2019, where the nil issue was getting ahead of the NCAA, and the NCAA then co-opted it under the uh, guise of pretending to want uh, meaningful name, image, and likeness rules changes so athletes could benefit from their nil, when in fact they had no intention of changing a single rule. And to this day, they have not. So now, at the last minute, after the NCAA has dumped all their nil trash on the doorstep of all the member institutions, it comes out with this self-righteous press release that doesn't acknowledge in any way the NCAA's absolute failure to get anything done on name, image, and likeness. So the first paragraph says, NCAA colleges will have the opportunity to benefit from their name, image, and likeness beginning Thursday. Governance bodies in all three divisions today adopted a uniform interim policy, suspending NCAA name, image, and likeness rules for all incoming and current student-athletes in all sports. So that's set up there. They're going straight for this. Everybody agrees. And that agreement runs across the entire association through the three divisions and all these independent governing uh, boards that operate under the NCAA umbrella. They all agree. A uniform interim policy. Then we get this. Mark Emmert comes out of hiding and we get a statement from Mark Emmert and a couple of quotes here. And here's what Emmert had to say. Thank God he was there for us because, gosh, without him, boy, we'd be in trouble. And we have him to thank. College athletes have Mark Emmert to thank. So here's what Mark says. This is an important day for college athletes since they are all now able to take advantage of name, image, and likeness opportunities. With the variety of state laws adopted across the country, we will continue to work with Congress to develop a solution that will provide clarity on a national level. The current environment, both legal and legislative, prevents us from providing a more permanent solution and the level of detail student athletes deserve. So in that first sentence of the quote, this is an important day for college athletes since they are all now able to take advantage of name, image, and likeness opportunities. Mark Emmert is stepping in front of the uh, microphone here, so to speak, to claim credit for these name, image, and likeness opportunities. And then he pivots immediately from taking credit for this when he is the person most responsible for screwing it up and preventing athletes from having meaningful name, image, and likeness opportunities. And under Mark Emmert's leadership since 2010, the NCAA has been fighting tooth and nail, sparing no cost to litigate these antitrust cases to death and to push them through the appellate process to get extraordinary protections and immunities. And then they had a stealth campaign in the Senate to essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And seven hours and 40 minutes before the states who stepped in in the NCAA's leadership vacuum and Mark Emmert's leadership vacuum to give these athletes some basic rights as Americans in the free markets, Mark Emmert claims credit for granting these athletes nationwide name, 
image and likeness opportunities. And Mark Emmert could not get away with this kind of failed leadership unless he had the backing of the governing boards. And remember, his contract was renewed in April of 2021, and it was unanimous. And it was not actually not renewed. It wasn't even up for renewal. They just extended it. And I talked about that in prior episodes. These governing bodies are serving one purpose only, and that is to provide camouflage for the corruption in the NCAA national office and in this dysfunctional business model that has nothing to do with athlete well-being. It has to do with making money and protecting the NCAA bureaucracy and protecting the Power 5 football interest. That's it. So then when he pivots in his second uh, part of this quote, he is laying the pathway for where the NCAA is going with this. So he says, we will continue to work with Congress to develop a solution that will provide clarity. What clarity? The issue isn't about clarity. It's about preemption. It is about granting the NCAA and the Power Five extraordinary federal protections and immunities that if they get them, will allow them to do nothing on nil. And that's exactly their intention. And then the same old lame excuse, the current environment, both legal and legislative, which the NCAA created. The NCAA went to Congress. Congress didn't come to the NCAA. The NCAA appealed the Austin suit. The athletes didn't appeal it. The legislative and legal environments were created by the NCAA in their arrogant, corrupt attempt to achieve the iron throne of college sports regulation. And they say that prevents us from providing a more permanent solution and the level of detail student athletes deserve. That is, again, just another piece of propaganda that the media just swallows hook, line, and sinker. When you look at the articles that came out after this statement was released, they uh, report those quotes as if they make any sense, as if they have any credibility. And you just get this reportage from these sports reporters, and they don't look at what Emmert actually said, they just throw in his quote to say, here's what Emmert had to say. But the NCAA has created this ridiculous false dilemma of their own making after shooting themselves in the foot in their Senate campaign and then in the appeal in Austin. And they say, we have no control here. It's out of our hands. And there's nothing we can do because of this environment that just exists out there. And it prevents us from providing a more permanent solution. No, there's nothing preventing you from providing a more permanent solution. The permanent solution is for you to acknowledge the dishonesty of your business model and treat these athletes as free Americans and take action, take leadership action. There's a complete absence of leadership. This is anti-leadership, both from Mark Emmert and from the governing boards, particularly the board of governors, because at any time during this entire nil campaign that started in 2019, they could have said, look, we don't care what the consequences are. These athletes deserve the opportunity to make some money, in a free American economy from their name, image, and likeness, and we're going to pass some rules, and if it ruffles some feathers or we get sued, so be it, and we'll deal with that. But this entire campaign is built around the lie that they cannot take any action unless they get 
all these protections and immunity. So again, the NCAA is back to the same place that it was from the very beginning. And because things blew up in Mark Emmert's face, now they don't have any cards left to play. So they're in a desperation mode. And this interim policy is evidence of that. And what's ironic about this is that this on-the-fly, half-baked, generalized statement of what the guidelines ought to be actually is more permissive than anything the NCAA had in its proposed legislation, and it's more permissive than what is contained in the six state name, image, and likeness laws that went into effect, with the exception of New Mexico, and I've talked about that as well. But nobody's talking about the New Mexico law because New Mexico is not a threat to the business model and the business interest and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries because there's not a Power 5 school in the state of New Mexico. So that uh, proposed law has been on the books and all we hear about is Florida, Florida, Florida. But nobody's talking about New Mexico because the NCAA doesn't care. The business insiders don't care because New Mexico is not a player. There's not a product in the state of New Mexico that is a player in the big-time college sports marketplace. But outside of that New Mexico law, all these other laws have these restrictions that are built in to make sure that these athletes don't make uh, much of anything from their nil and that their nil opportunities can't interfere with the revenue streams at the Power Five institutions in those states. So you have this bizarre irony now that the state laws, these laws that were pitched as giving an unfair competitive advantage to schools that are in those states relative to the schools and states that don't have name, image, and likeness laws. And now that I think the opposite is going to turn out to be true because of these vague, meaningless guidelines that the NCAA has put out through this interim policy that are far more permissive than the state laws. You may see, actually, schools in the states that have these name, image, and likeness laws going to the legislature and saying, we just want to suspend these laws and let's go with this interim policy because we have a lot more flexibility there. Again, this is just falls into the category of you can't make this stuff up. And all of this is a direct result of the NCAA's mismanagement of name, image, and likeness. And you're not going to hear that coming from any of these governing boards because they are in bed with Mark Emmert and they are stuck with him. So let's, let's go down this statement here. And then it includes those four bullet points that I identified yesterday. The first one talks about, well, if you're in a state that has a, a nil law that went into effect, then follow the law and your colleges and universities can help you do that. Then the second one is if you're in a state that doesn't have a nil law, then you can engage in nil activity without violating NCAA rules. And then uh, you can hire agents and then you have to report to the state or the school, your nil activities. But again, there's no details, which is why Emmert throws in this line that he is prevented from providing the level of detail that student athletes deserve because of this environment in the legal and legislative process that he himself created. So then you pivot from that and then you have this throw in about we still want to preserve amateurism and we still want to make sure that there's no pay for play and that athletes aren't being paid for their performance or their athletic ability or their notoriety and all these Orwellian principles that are facially inconsistent with athletes participating freely in American free markets. So then they to try to soften the blow of this statement in Mark Emmert's quote. 
the public relations people, remember, the NCAA spares no cost in their public relations campaign. They got this whole staff of PR people, and you go to their website and you see the list of them. And you're like, do they really need, I don't know, eight public relations people? And then they have this company. I, I think they're still affiliated with this big-time D.C. public relations firm and spin doctors. So they're trying to put together this statement in a way that limits the damage and creates the appearance of consensus. So you have quotes from three different people in support of this interim policy and in support of maintaining amateurism and no pay for play and no inducement in in the recruiting process. One is the president of Texas State University. And Texas State is in this group of five. I think they're in the Sun Belt Conference. They're the, the conference is nipping at the heels of the Power Five, but they're in the FBS division, this football-oriented division that has about 120 schools and I think 10 conferences. And so the president of Texas State is a woman named Denise Trouth. And let's see, Trouth says, today NCAA members voted to allow college athletes to benefit from name, image, and likeness opportunities, no matter where their school is located. Hooray for the NCAA. Hooray for Mark Emmert. Hooray for the Division I Board of Directors. Hooray for the NCAA Board of Governors. Then she says, with this interim solution in place, we will continue to work with Congress to adopt federal legislation to support student athletes. But this statement that they want to work with Congress to adopt federal legislation to support student athletes? No. The federal legislation that has been proposed by the NCAA, by its henchmen in the Senate, is specifically designed to defeat the rights of athletes. Then we have another quote from another stakeholder. And this is from the Division II representative of the President's Council Chair. And her name is Sandra Jordan. She is from the University of South Carolina, Aiken. She's a chancellor and it's one of the University of South Carolina system schools and it's smaller. And again, they're in Division II, so they're not in the big time college sports sweepstakes. And Jordan says, the new policy preserves the fact college sports are not pay for play. It also reinforces key principles of fairness and integrity across the NCAA and maintains rules prohibiting improper recruiting inducements. It's important any new rules maintain these principles. So I think what the spin doctors were saying is that we have some points we want to make, and we're going to use these three mouthpieces to get out different points. So Trouth was, oh yeah, we're all about student athletes, and we got to go to Congress. That was Emmert's quote. His quote was about Congress. Trouth is about Congress. Then Jordan's is about we have to stand up for the sacred principles and we have to make sure there's no pay for play. So she's doing the amateurism dance for the NCAA. And then we have another quote. This one from the Division Three President's Council Chair. And this is from Faye Neese Miller, who is president at Hamline. It's a small school. And here is what President Miller had to say. The new interim policy provides college athletes and their families some sense of clarity around name, image, and likeness, but we are committed to doing more. Well, Mark Emmert just said that there is no clarity 
and he apologizes for not being more specific and giving the athletes the detail that they deserve. But we're providing clarity and we're providing direction and we're in charge here and we care. That's what President Miller is saying. Then she goes on to say, we need to continue working with Congress for a more permanent solution. So you're back to that congressional theme. So you have statements from representatives of each division, Division One, Division Two, Division Three, and then, of course, from Mark Emmert. And again, this suggests unity and the message is coordinated and it suggests that everybody has independently come to this conclusion through this deliberative process of integrity in NCAA governance. And there's no mention in this statement that all three of these women also sit on the NCAA Board of Governors. And I'm going to talk about the membership roster here in just a second. And when you look at that roster, that the representation among Division Two and Division Three is token. There are just a few seats there. And the Division One representative is from a lower-level FBS school. So you got Texas State, and you have South Carolina Aiken, and you have Hamline represented. Not to denigrate those universities, I'm sure they're wonderful universities and they do wonderful things, and I'm sure all three of these women are wonderful leaders and good people, but that is not a representative slice of the true business model and the true incentives. And I think including those three voices in this press release also provides some PC cover for Mark Emmert because they're all women and two of the three are African-American women. But those three voices, particularly the Division Two and Division Three voices, are about as far removed from the truth of the NCAA's business model as you can be under the NCAA umbrella. And the University of South Carolina Aiken and Hamline have virtually nothing in common with the Power Five conference institutions. Nothing. And you don't hear boo from any of those representatives on the Division I Board of Directors or the NCAA Board of Governors. Nothing. Again, this is just a smokescreen to limit criticism and to get out the talking points. And the talking points is, hooray for us. We did it. We did it. We're the leaders on name, image, and likeness compensation. And then the other message, the, the main message, and this came through in three of the four quotes, is that we're right back in Congress and we're going to be right back in the fray there doing everything in our power through our powerful lobbyists, lawyers, and public relations people to make sure that we get as much as we can get to keep these athletes from making any more money. And if you think they're going to Congress to try to work out a broad-based bipartisan bill that will include substantial and meaningful athletes' rights. You're kidding yourself. And as I was reading over this press release last night and alternating between laughter and frustration, particularly looking at stories that covered that press release as if it was an honest decision of integrity by the NCAA, I realized that I hadn't discussed, I don't think, in enough detail what these governing bodies look like, how they're put together, why they are put together the way that they're put together. And I talked about it in segmented ways. I talked about the NCAA governance process generally 
early on. And then in my Prisoner's Dilemma series, I talked in length about how the powerful football interests beginning in the 1970s began to segregate and separate their interests from the rest of the NCAA. And that has been done in a very calculated and aggressive campaign over the years to say to the rest of the NCAA, we're the money makers here. You give us what we want or else we're leaving. And they've done that several times. And over the course of those power plays and that bullying and threats of secession from the NCAA, and that culminated really in 2014 with this autonomy legislation. So now the Power Five conferences are essentially an association within an association. And not only do the Power Five have the freedom to make their own rules through the autonomy classification, they also have a controlling voice in governance through these hostile takeover events that have occurred going back now, what, 50 years. So when you look at how these boards are put together, they are dominated by football interests. And the entire governance structure of the NCAA is explicitly defined by football interests. So what I did last night, as I was thinking about this, I printed out the rosters for the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. And I highlighted all of the members of the Board of Governors that also sit on the Division I Board of Directors. And I used a pink highlighter. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the Board of Governors because it's changed in the last couple of years. But now there are 21 voting members of the Board of Governors, and there are 24 members of the Division I Board of Directors. And so I highlighted in pink. And when you hold the highlighted members next to each other, these two pages representing these two boards, there's a bunch of pink. And there's a reason for that, because there is no meaningful independence between these two bodies, because by definition, there is crossover representation that's required. So when you look at these two rosters, and these are what's on the NCAA website right now, so I guess they're as up-to-date as they're going to be, you see that of the 24 Division I Board of Directors members, 12 of them also sit on the 21-member Board of Governors. That is just massive crossover. And it makes a mockery of this suggestion that there is true independence between these two governing bodies. And these are the two most important governing bodies in the entire association. They call the shots on everything. And when you look at the specific responsibility of these two boards, and you, and you see, for example, that the Division I Board of Directors has explicit authority and responsibility for offering input and an evaluation of the NCAA president and his performance, and they are supposed to present that to the Board of Governors, and then you look at the crossover representation, you realize that is simply a ruse. Because the Division One Board of Directors are essentially evaluating the decisions that they made when wearing their hats as the Board of Governors. Because the Board of Governors under the NCAA Constitution has the exclusive jurisdiction to hire and fire the NCAA president. They're supposed to get independent input 
and guidance from the board of directors, but that's just a complete fraud because these people are judging their own decisions in when they're wearing another hat for another body. It's just really a breathtaking level of insider dealing and self-dealing. And again, it's something that nobody talks about, but this is the reality. This is how the sausage is made at the NCAA, and it is just based on a big ball of conflict of interest, and that's just the way the NCAA likes it. And they have been so effective at just churning out this propaganda, and this press release is a perfect example of that. They present these three voices as truly independent voices and suggest unanimity through this deliberative and autonomous decision-making process. And it's important to note at the big-picture level that on the backside of all these power plays by big-time college football, the seats, as they're defined in the NCAA's Article 4 of its Constitution, are explicitly defined by the level of football that the conference participates in. So remember, we have the FBS, those are the big-time conferences. Then we have the Football Championship Series. Those are the lower-level Division I schools that aren't really in the big-money game, and they're not household football names. And then you have the rest of Division I that doesn't have any football product at all. So I just want to talk uh, a little bit about the board of directors and what their jurisdiction is, what their role is. I'm not going to talk about the Division One Council because, quite frankly, they aren't a power player. And they're not going to put uh, into play any legislation that's inconsistent with big-time powerful football interests. And they know that it's not going to be successful. So they're just this straw conduit through which the NCAA can claim that there's this legitimate independent legislative process where legislation originates in the Division One Council, then it is reviewed and adopted, if appropriate, by the board of directors and given this blessing by the overall association-wide governing body, the Board of Governors. But that's an illusion. So there are only two important governing bodies. So let's start with the Division I Board of Directors. So in Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution relating to the Board of Directors, it says that the Board of Directors will have 24 members, 20 of whom must be university presidents or chancellors. And remember, that university president-chancellor representation model came out of this quest for presidential control over intercollegiate athletics. And that was the focus in part of the Carnegie Report in 1929. It was clearly the focus of the Knight Commission effort starting in 1991 and going through 2010. They were built around presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics. And both at the institutional level and then at the representative level in the NCAA governance system. So you have this uh, university president's chancellor's model. And then the allocation of the seats within the group of 20, of these 20 uh, university presidents and chancellors, was based on conference affiliation. And so the Division I conferences are divided into these three groups. You have the, the FBS division, football, bowl, subdivision, again defined explicitly by football interest. Those are the 10 big-time conferences, the Power Five and the group of five. And then you have this second group that has the 11 FCS, the football championship subdivision, again, whose uh, very existence in the governance structure is defined by football interests. And then you have this third group that's comprised of 11 non-football conferences. So 
those seats are allocated to this first group, the big-time football interests. Each conference, each of the 10 conferences, gets a representative on the D1 board of directors. And the Power 5 conferences are in this group. So already, just with that one requirement, you're almost on your way to a majority of votes just from the FBS. Then the second group, the football championship subdivision conferences, they only get five representatives. They get half the number of representatives that the FBS conferences get. But it's still football interests. So with those two categories, you are up to 15 and a clear majority of football interests in the board of directors. And then this last group of the non-football conferences, they get five representatives. But then there are four remaining positions. You have the, the chair of the board, and then you have the Division I member of the women leaders in college sports, Division I member of the executive committee of the faculty athletics representatives, and then the chair of the student athlete advisory committee, this token seat for student representation. But in those remaining four kind of ad hoc positions, you have Division I leadership, and you have it at, two, at three levels. So this is a governing board, a, a governing body that is explicitly defined by football interests. It's top heavy in football interests, and it is designed, purposefully designed to protect big time football interests, which means the big time college sports marketplace. And there is no question about that. And when you look at the Division I Council, and there are 40 members of the Division I Council, it looks a little more democratic on its face, but the football interests are protected there through weighted voting and jurisdictional issues where the Division I Council can't speak to certain football issues, and they can't speak to anything with the uh, autonomy conferences and schools. And then there's weighted voting that gives greater weight to the football interests. So the, the football interests are protected up and down the chain of command. And I just want to talk for a second about what the board of directors is authorized to do. And in the NCAA Constitution, Article 4, Section 4.2.2, it says the board of directors shall serve as the overall governing body for Division One, with responsibility for strategy, policy, legislative oversight, and management oversight. So they have the authority to ratify, amend, or defeat legislation proposed by the council, this lower-level legislative body. They have the authority to rescind or adopt other legislation addressed by the council in order to prevent an extraordinary adverse impact on the Division I membership, which means an extraordinarily adverse impact on big-time powerful football interests. That's what that means. And then they also have the authority to appoint members of the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions and the Division I of Infractions Appeals Committee. So again, this goes to the incest. So these big-time powerful football interests are responsible for putting together the bodies that oversee this infractions and enforcement process. And then let's see, what else? They get to assure, and this is important, gender and ethnic diversity among its membership and the membership of each of the other bodies in the administrative structure. Again, this falls into the you can't make this up category. Because when you go back and you look at who, how these bodies have been put together from a diversity, both ethnic and gender diversity, it's an embarrassment. And Richard Lapchick, who is a well-respected professor that looks at diversity in 
college sports and actually all sports, but he talks about college sports and he does an annual report card and the report card for gender and ethnic diversity is just embarrassing at every level in college sports. And I'll get into that at some point, but that makes the use of these three women, two of whom are African-American in this press release, even more ironic because that creates the illusion that there is genuine diversity in the way that the NCAA operates at the governance level. And again, two of those three spokespeople are simply not power players because they come from Division Two and Division Three, and they are purposefully marginalized in the governance process and in the governance boards because they don't want a bunch of interests that don't understand the, the thinking of the big-time powerful money players to come in and try to muck things up. So anyway, some of the other stuff that the board of directors can do is they approve an annual budget for Division One. That's a consequential role. And then another thing, that's, and this is really important, and it said, listen to this stuff, advise the board of governors concerning the employment of the NCAA president and concerning the oversight of his or her employment. So that power suggests that the NCAA Division I Board of Directors is offering an independent, impartial evaluation of the NCAA president, who is hired by the Board of Governors, reports only to the Board of Governors, and, and has no other responsibilities or loyalties to anybody else in the system. And as I discussed just a few minutes ago, this is nothing more than a big ball of self-dealing because of the crossover representation between the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors. So let's go up the chain of command and let's look at the NCAA Board of Governors, this association-wide governing body. And it has an interesting recent history because it underwent some changes as a result of the Commission on College Basketball's report in 2018. And remember, that commission was put together by the NCAA to look into alleged corruption and scandal in men's college basketball that resulted in some indictments up in New York. And I'm going to talk about that in detail at some point. I've written about it, and I did a post called Implausible Deniability in my blog. You might want to check that out. But prior to the Commission on College Basketball report, the NCAA Board of Governors had 20 members. Four were non-voting. So there were 16 voting seats. But the way that the Board of Governors is put together, it requires crossover membership from the Division I Board of Directors. And Article 4 on Board of Governors representation and the composition of the Board of Governors requires chancellors or presidents from the following pools of people. First, eight chancellors or presidents from the Division I Board of Directors from the Football Bowl subdivision. Those are the big-time football conferences and schools. Two, chancellors or presidents from the Division I Board of Directors from Football Championship Subdivision. And that's the lower level D1 football. But again, just with these 16 voting seats, we're already up to 10 seats that are controlled and defined explicitly by football interests. And eight of those are the big time football interests. So we're up to 10. Then we have two chancellors or presidents from the Division I Board of Directors from the Division I Subdivision Institutions. And Division I Subdivision 
is the classification in Division One that doesn't have uh, football at all. So these are the schools that don't field football teams, but they're still Division One. And then you have this token representation from Division Two. So two members of the Board of Governors are Division Two chancellors or presidents from the Division Two President's Council. And then you have token representation for Division Three. You have two Division Three chancellors or presidents from the Division Three President's Council. So what does that mean? That means that 10 of the then 16 voting seats on the Board of Governors were controlled by big-time, powerful football interest. And eight of those 10 come from the Division I Board of Directors. That just makes a mockery of this claimed independence between the Division I Board of Directors and the Board of Governors. And you have to go deep into the weeds, into the NCAA Constitution, and really chart this out and then look at it, look at these rosters side by side to appreciate visually the extent of the crossover here. And when the Commission on College Basketball issued its report, one of the things that they said was, look, you are just piling conflict of interest on top of conflict of interest at every level. But at the most basic level, you have this board of governors that is basically comprised of big time football insiders who have the least incentive to abide by all the principles that the NCAA claims to stand for. And this entire commercialized, professionalized marketplace that's evolved in college sports is the direct product of moving away from those values of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete. Those are the people who are in control, and they control the two most important governing bodies in the entire association. So the Commission on College Basketball recommended the addition of five quote-unquote independent members to try to mitigate the obvious conflicts of interest that exist in the governance structure. So I don't know if this started in 2018 or 2019. Maybe it was the beginning of 2019. The NCAA expanded the Board of Governors to 25 members, and four of those are non-voting ex officio. And then you have these five, quote unquote, independent members, but they are appointed, nominated and appointed from within the Board of Governors. So it's just this self-appointing, reinforcing circle of interests. Everybody reads from the same page and all of their decisions are unanimous. This decision about extending Mark Emmert's contract made in April of 2021, just a couple months ago, that was a unanimous decision. I mean, the better question is, is there ever a non-unanimous decision? And why wouldn't there be when the same people are sitting both on the Division I Board of Directors and the NCAA Board of Governors? And they're pretending that those are truly separate, independent bodies that create some checks and balances against each other. So you have these new directors, and there's some external commentators. I think Arnie Duncan, former Secretary of Education under Obama, I think, he is involved with the Knight Commission. And one of the things the Knight Commission has said, and Duncan has really promoted, is that these five members need to be appointed by someone other than the very body that exists to preserve its power and preserve the conflicts of interest. And the suggestion there is that there really isn't a true independence, and they're not going to bring in anybody who disagrees in any way 
with the status quo operation of NCAA governance and the protection of big-time powerful football and men's basketball interests. It's not going to happen. So let's look at what the Board of Governors is actually tasked to do. Two of the most important powers of the Board of Governors are actually three. They approve the final budget and they have oversight responsibility for the association's budget, so the national office budget, association-wide expenditures. Then they have exclusive authority for employing and setting the compensation for the NCAA president. And again, that is not an arm's-length transaction because the NCAA president, by definition there, is not elected has no loyalty to the membership or to any of the constituency groups in the broader NCAA membership. The NCAA president is employed by the Board of Governors, reports to the Board of Governors, and the only check on the NCAA president is the NCAA Board of Governors. And then the uh, other thing that they do, which is really important now, is that the Board of Governors has exclusive jurisdiction and authority for initiating and settling litigation, which means that all these litigation-related decisions that have been made during the athletes' rights wave, really going back to 2006, but most importantly, since 2019 in connection with the Austin suit, are made by the NCAA Board of Governors. This is a governance structure protecting the most important parts of the business model that they want to disguise from the rest of the world, and that is the maximization of revenue in big-time football and big-time men's basketball and the preservation of the NCAA administrative state. That's it. And that's what this whole campaign has been about. And this goes back to the very early episodes of this podcast when I was talking about the perfect storm and how it has exposed some of the fault lines in this dysfunctional business model. And what's happening now in the absence of truly independent voices from the two most important governing bodies in the entire NCAA system is the product of self-dealing and self-interest. So who's going to speak out? Who's going to say, this is all a complete house of cards that is built on a corrupt business model and a corrupt governance model? Who's going to say that? Nobody. And remember, these are all university presidents and chancellors. And this gets back to this fantasy that the responsibility for institutional control and the integrity of college sports runs through university presidents and chancellors is just a comical proposition because they have not only done nothing to call out the corruption, they are swimming in it because they have a controlling voice on these governing bodies. And there's, I believe, self-selection in to those seats the people who are the true believers and who are going to protect the status quo and protect all the revenue streams and protect all the interests of the NCAA national office. And the NCAA has been very effective at purchasing the loyalty of people downstream and people in Division Two and Division Three by spreading around the March Madness money. And they give block grants to Division Two, block grants to Division Three. They have this bloated bureaucracy where they're spending money on conferencing and committees and all this stuff that's supposed to make everybody feel good about themselves. And they're part of the grand mission of preserving the integrity of college sports. 
And the NCAA has been getting away with that business and governance model for decades. And so one of the things that I hope will be on the table when we transition into the Senate debate and the NCAA and all their inside minions and all their people operating from these profound conflicts of interest are starting to pump out their propaganda that there's chaos, there's calamity, do something now, uniformity, uniformity. They're going to come back to that. And I think that part of the discussion in the Senate needs to be the NCAA governance structure. And that hasn't been addressed honestly. And the Commission on College Basketball pointed it out, and that was only half a page at the very end of the report. And it was very vague, but it was this Band-Aid they could put on so long as they're bringing in uh, these quote-unquote independent members. And then it looks like they're doing something to resolve the obvious conflicts of interest. And that's why Congress needs to really step in and look at this in, in some detail and really call this stuff out which is another reason for independent outside scrutiny and oversight. And so when we're transitioning into the Senate here, I think there simply needs to be a complete forensic accounting of the entire NCAA system. And I don't mean just a financial accounting. I mean an accounting on governance, on leadership, on conflicts of interest, on every aspect of how the NCAA national office operates and how the governance structure operates. And that needs to be put on the table in detail. And Congress needs to start issuing some subpoenas here and getting the communications between the members of the Board of Governors and the members of the Division I Board of Directors. I mean, are they sending emails to themselves? (laughs) Because they're sitting on both of those bodies. But We need to know, before the NCAA is granted any extraordinary power or immunity, we need to know how the NCAA actually conducts its business. And again, it's important to say again, this isn't Congress coming to the NCAA and saying, you're engaging in some questionable market behavior here and we want to take a look at it. Or you're not treating the athletes right and we want to take a look at it. This is the NCAA through a coordinated campaign, a very sophisticated, multifaceted campaign to come to a Congress, particularly the United States Senate, to demand federal protections and immunities that are unprecedented No other industry has been granted those protections. And certainly no other market actor in sports, college or professional, has been granted the extraordinary package of protections and immunities the NCAA is asking for and really has been demanding and has been strong-arming Republicans in the Senate to put forth. And that debate is still alive. And before you are going to be given these extraordinary powers that give you essentially sovereign status without any of the responsibilities of a governmental entity, then there need to be some substantial concessions there. And the NCAA hasn't made a single concession, not one. And that's why it's so important to look at what these bills in the Senate from these Republican senators actually do, what they look like, so that we can have that on the table going into this debate. And there's been a lot of talk about Congress doing something in August, and that's right around the corner. A lot of this is really right on the table. But this goes back to what Senator Schatz from Hawaii was asking of Mark Emmert in that June 9th hearing just a few weeks ago. 
And that is, wait a minute, you're asking for all this stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. You want antitrust immunity. You want a declaration that these athletes uh, can't be employees. That has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. It never has because this campaign to achieve the iron throne of college sports regulation has never had anything to do with name, image, and likeness. Shots really got to the point there, and he said, what are you giving up in exchange? What are these nil benefits? The answer is they're giving up nothing. There are no substantive nil benefits in these proposals that have come out from Roger Wicker and Marco Rubio and Brand. None. So this is a different dynamic, and the Senate now has an opportunity with the momentum it, it, it has both from the NCAA's self-inflicted wounds in its Senate campaign, but more importantly from the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court in Austin to say, we've been playing ball by your rules now for years. And I think they have a duty to really take a good look under the hood of the National Collegiate Athletic Association before they get a single concession. And not just with respect to putting into a federal bill some basic athletes' rights on health care and educational benefits and all that stuff, but looking at the organization as an organization, how it operates, how corrupt it is, and whether or not it should simply be put out of its misery. That's the discussion that needs to happen. And we'll see. But the way this is shaping up right now, I fear a rush to the Senate, a rush to Congress, and a rush to a bill that Maria Cantwell and some other bipartisan-oriented legislators in the Senate are going to say victory for student-athletes, victory for uniformity, victory for bipartisanship. I don't see that. I don't see that. Not based on the issues as they've been framed thus far in Congress. So my next episode, I think I want to talk about this uh, Senate campaign in a little more detail. And I want to start talking about these bills that have come out in the Senate and this Jerry Moran bill. I may go in reverse order. So the first bill that came out really was from Marco Rubio in June of uh, 2020. And then you had Roger Wicker coming in in December of 2020. And then you had Moran coming in February of 2021. And those bills kind of built on each other and are designed to protect the status quo. That's it. They're not going to be uh, game changers, except to the extent that if the NCAA gets all the protections that those bills offer, then they will be completely insulated from any scrutiny and any liability. So with that, I guess we'll close this episode out. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. 